0: Hello, I'm Richard Hurley, Debates and Features Editor at the BMJ. In this podcast, we'll explore a controversial subject that 35,000 physicians will be voting on this month. Physician-assisted dying, referred to by some as assisted suicide, because even the terminology is controversial, is a debate that just doesn't go away. And what doctors say about assisted dying matters. In February, the Royal College of Physicians is to poll its members and says it will shift from opposing any legal change to a position of neutrality unless 60% of votes say otherwise. So we'll hear from a number of doctors on different sides of the debate. Canada's medical assistance in dying law allows people help to die if they are suffering intolerably and their death is reasonably foreseeable. Here's the author of an essay in this week's BMJ. Sandy Buckman, a Toronto palliative care doctor and president-elect of the Canadian Medical Association, gives his rather personal story about how he arrived at his decision to provide assisted dying.
1: In the piece, you give a very poignant uh, account of the first patient you helped um, to, mm-hmm. to die by maid, um, uh, Dr. Gordon Froggett. I was yep. wondering if you could um, give that account again now for, for, for listeners.
2: Sure, of course. So, um, Dr. Faragat was a a wonderful man, Um, a highly respected professor of medicine cardiologist. Um, He was born and raised in the UK, uh, trained at St. Mary's, um, and came uh, to Canada and to the University of Toronto uh, as a cardiologist, um, and was... (laughs) was known everywhere once sort of his name came out and people came through. Oh, yes, I trained under Dr. Froggett. He was a lovely, lovely man. He was married um, with uh, two children, had a lot of relatives as well back in the UK, and several years ago began to develop um, Parkinson's disease and, um, and ultimately a very advanced form of, of Parkinson's disease, and he had been through virtually every uh, treatment uh, imaginable and um and so, as his condition was declining and and really medicine you know and couldn't offer more, and he was under the care of an incredibly eminent neurologist um he uh it was felt that uh seeing a palliative care physician might help his symptoms were profound um he had a a very severe uh, a tremor, shake of his torso and his head and his uh, arms. He, this was uncontrollable. Um, he was incredibly rigid. Um, of course, the, uh, the loss of affect in his in his faces, etc., were all present. And indeed, he had started to develop very early uh, Lewy body dementia. He was referred to me um, in. Oh, I would say it was about April of 2016, end of April 2016. The made it was set to become legal on June 16th, 2016. And he asked me, um, he asked me if I would consider exploring this with him. And having had done all this personal reflection about it, knowing I said, I said, of course. I'll I'll look into it with you. And so as I described in the paper, he lit up. He appeared illuminated. There was a a glimmer of hope. The light got in. And I should mention that um, he had suffered from significant depression with his advancing disease over the previous three years and was being treated uh, by a, a geriatric psychiatrist. Gordon was now about 79 and um and he was getting help and a lot of support but uh the depression was 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 also quite profound and this is of course something we are concerned about uh when we uh do eligibility assessments for for made and uh but he lit up with just the with just the hope of of that he might not be doomed to the suffering that he knew only too well as a physician what was ahead of him he dreaded um being carried in a Hoyer lift, uh, to be moved from bed to chair. He dreaded not being able to turn over in bed. He dreaded not the, the lack of dignity and not being able to, uh, do his personal hygiene or toilet. So, so then, um, We began the exploration and he was found, uh, we have many criteria, which I won't mention now, but he was found to be eligible and he had full capacity. He understood the decision and appreciated the consequences of this decision. His family, of course, were ambivalent. They were in the midst of uh, sort of this anticipatory grief, but they supported Gordon. and They had high respect for his wishes and uh, were behind him 100%. And so ultimately, he was seen by another physician as well. We have independent physicians doing the assessment. He was found to be eligible. But even sh- to be more sure, I had him seen by his neurologist again, who became part of it. She became part of the interview, um, and she found his, um, his de- disease, to his death, I'm sorry, to be reasonably foreseeable, because that, too, is a criteria um, and I had him reevaluated by, by his uh, psychiatrist, who again found his depression had lifted, and indeed he had full capacity. So um, we decided to go ahead with it. It took place. He invited his uh, family from the UK to come. He sort of celebrated his life with them while he was uh, still alive. And then, on after the legislation had passed, so we're into July of 2016 now. Um, in the comfort of his own home, in his own room, surrounded by his family. Um, We, uh, we, you know, we set up two large-bore IVs. We use medications, um, midazolam for sedation, and then propofol and rocuronium in high doses. And the whole procedure, you know, well, just before, actually, I again asked him if he he wished uh, me to proceed and he could withdraw his consent at any time and no change in his care would what happened, and he said, he told me to go, go ahead, and thanked me, and um, I administered the medication, and he just went off into a into beautiful deep sleep, and uh, in the arms of his daughter, and it was one of the most beautiful deaths I'd seen, I've seen too many, unfortunately, and in palliative care, we achieve beautiful deaths as well, but this is this is also one of them, um, and within a few minutes, he had passed and, um, and with his family there. And uh, so, uh, again, a home death. Uh, he had a sense of control. He got his wish. And I knew deep down that I had alleviated his suffering. Um, it built our relationship um, over time. It has with many of these patients who we, res- we respect their wishes and their autonomy. We retain strong relationships with family. And there may be family members at times who have disagreed. That that happens. We work to try to reconcile that and respect the patient. But I would say 99% of the time, literally, it's a very positive situation, and uh, and the strong relationships that we obtained with the patients and their families, and then with their families continue.
1: And I'm just interested if you could say something about. Um, how this relates to, to the specialty of palliative care, and and how it is for you as a palliative care doctor. Just in this country, there seems to be a reluctance among that members of that specialty to um, speak in favour of, of assisted dying. It, it, is that how it was in Canada before the law changed? How, how have palliative care doctors responded to the, the changes yes, in Canada? Yes, it, it,
2: it's still the same in Canada. Um, very similar to the UK. Um, palliative care, and uh, within the definition of palliative care in the World Health Organization, it it it's you know it states pretty clearly that palliative care does not involve hastening death, and um, so. Uh, generally speaking, um, our palliative care organizations, particularly the physicians' palliative care organizations, do not uh, support um, assisted dying. They don't see it as part and parcel of palliative care. And I guess that myself and many of my colleagues in palliative care who do participate in it are beginning to see a blurring of the distinction between. Um, between palliative care and medically assisted dying it's it's become in canada a uh, legal uh, ethical um, end-of-life option um, if a patient needs fully informed consent to make decisions it is one of their options it's insured by our universal health care system um, it is an potential option for patients. So we're in a sort of ethical conundrum, you know, should all options be brought up for patients? So when I, if I take an approach that working in end-of-life care and ultimately taking a compassionate approach with that to alleviate suffering, I see it as as a real option for patients who who have this extreme intolerable suffering? Um, I see, I see the the law as protecting the vulnerable. There are safeguards. I see the law is protecting me if I do everything absolutely properly. Um, so, I see my I see the expression of my um, my role as a physician in in being compassionate and alleviating the suffering as. Um, when I provide made is consistent with all my other roles as a palliative care physician, even if it means hastening the patient's death. So just like Dr. Frogett, I believe that I have served the need and treated them in an effective way um, because there may not be other options. Other options may cause more suffering um, or the patients do not find those options acceptable. So I do see it consistent with uh, being a palliative care physician, um, and um, but very respectful of my colleagues who whose values, whose faith, whose backgrounds do not permit them to cross that line. This is a very difficult line. Um, it's respect for autonomy for the patient, but we need to respect the autonomy. Uh, of each physician. Uh, I guess I just think we need to support all conscientious objectors and conscientious providers. I seek respect for my decision. And just as we did at our, our uh, palliative care group uh, in Toronto, we decided we're all in this together. We have to deal with it uh, as physicians. And so we, we, we went at it out of a sense of mutual respect and not to be judged. Some of my dearest, dearest palliative care colleagues, leaders in this country, in Canada, are incredibly respectful of my decision to be a provider. And likewise, I have their decision not to be a provider. And so um, we, and the CMA took that approach uh, way back in supporting both conscientious projectors, conscientious providers, again, respecting the autonomy of the uh, physician.
0: However, not everybody is convinced. Even harder than coming to an individual decision on assisted dying is trying to represent the position of a body of members. This is exactly what Jeff Blackmer, Vice President of International Health at the Canadian Medical Association, and based in Ottawa, describes. He tells me how the CMA moved to a position of neutrality on assisted dying, so it could support all its members, for and against. And it helped draft Canada's law.
3: It is very controversial. It is very difficult um, sometimes to take part in those often divisive conversations. Uh, but the board, I, I think, um, you know, really showed some some leadership uh, in saying that you know the representative body for the profession needed to be at the table. So to start with, um, we went around the country and held public and member town halls on. End of life care in general including assisted dying to get a sense of the pulse of both the public and the profession on these issues and it was less about a dichotomous yes no type of position and more to try and say if the law in canada does change how should the profession respond and that was a real turning point in the conversation as well because what we had found previously was that when you have those yes no conversations everything by definition is completely polarized and no one's views change as a result of those conversations people have already given this a lot of thought Um, these are deeply held personal views and they're not likely to change as a result of being challenged uh, by the opposing viewpoint and so by turning it um, to a more nuanced conversation around what we should do if the law does change we were really able to get it at some very rich material and and viewpoints um, and better understand where our membership was on the issue and and where the public was on the issue. And that really brought us to a turning point at our annual general meeting, uh, the same year as as the Carter um, case was heard, uh, which was to really debate, um, you know, really where we should go if the law were to change And so instead of basically saying, regardless of any change in the law, we will continue to oppose assisted dying, what the membership said very conclusively was, we will support the right of all our members to decide whether or not to participate in assisted dying within the confines of any law that might be forthcoming. And um, that was obviously a major shift in policy, um, but also really allowed us to take part in the conversation moving forward in a way that we would not have been able to do our policy not changed you know the only thing the only other thing that I would add is is that I have had you know these conversations with a number of of my colleagues in other countries um, and and I think it's just it's important for medical associations to learn from the experience of others and it's important for people to understand that no way are we suggesting that the approach taken by the Canadian Medical Association is the right approach for every country Um, What what a medical association does will depend on a huge variety of factors um, in any given circumstance. Um, All all we're doing is making ourselves available um, to have these conversations about one particular approach um, and and how that worked um, within, within those specific circumstances. And so we're not saying we have all the answers. We certainly don't. Um but we recognize you know that our brother and sister colleagues in other countries are grappling with this in the same way that that we did a few years ago, and if there's anything that we can share to make that experience um, you know less onerous or less difficult, we're certainly happy to do so but but we're not trying to uh, to tell everyone we have we have all the answers.
0: Proponents of assisted dying say it would give dying people who are suffering choice and control over how and when they die. But opponents fear the consequences for vulnerable people, for society and for the medical profession if doctors start being actively involved in inducing death. Here's Tony Baldwinson in Manchester, UK, from Not Dead Yet, the Disabled People's Campaign Group.
4: The, the fundamental reason is that we fear, um, we fear what, what, what would happen if the law was changed so that assisted suicide was even a smidgen allowed to be lawful Uh, we we know where that that leads to it's a slippery slope and the consequences for many disabled people would be utterly awful so disabled people have faced discrimination for centuries for many years and it's not a matter of an individual making some abstract choice as soon as the law changes if it ever did change the culture changes as well, the social power that will will just bear down on disabled people who are probably at a very difficult point in their life, very vulnerable, relying on others to help, and it leaves the door open to misguided and malign um, the killing, basically. Or, or, and it's it's something that people many disabled people rightly fear. It's not possible to write in safeguards here. That's the fundamental belief that we have, because as soon as as we get onto this slippery slope, then suddenly everything changes. And it isn't about, you know, testing, um, you know, choices that people make, or, you know, one person testing it, or two people testing it, or or, you know, it all starts to change so that the, the expectation becomes, the social expectation becomes that it's, it's OK now. You know, you should do um, what's expected of you and get out of the way.
0: Many physicians too are adamant that assisting suicide has no place in medicine. Rob George, a consultant physician in palliative care and honorary professor at King's College London, is in this camp.
1: So maybe you could start by telling me what you think the, the feeling is like towards uh, assisted suicide among palliative care doctors.
5: So the, the overarching view, and I don't think it has changed, is that we are not in favour of changing the law to involve doctors at all. If you look at the way we've approached this over the years, first of all, we look after patients who are dying all the time. And so we know how fluid their views are. We know how subject they are to suggestion and coercion. And we know also that if they're having a bad day, um, it's very different from having a good day. So you can have somebody changing in their views all the time. So helping people really to engage with death and complete a life well is what we're interested in doing. And we always say that our job is to look after people um, as they die, not in order that they die. Um, and if you, our most recent survey was 2014-2015 in response to the uh, bills that were put forward by um, Charlie Faulkner in the House of Lords and uh, Rob Maris in the House of Commons. And we've only ever really questioned our... Um, our colleagues at the time a bill is being put through parliament because that's a kind of real setting if you just talk about hypotheticals then people don't really know what it is they're having to deal with whereas if you do it against a bill then you know exactly what you may be expected to do and the uh, overwhelming majority of uh, practitioners were against um, assisted suicide by which i mean over 80 percent uh, and 90% said they themselves would not be involved in that, in particular in performing or assisting somebody either to kill themselves or administering uh, a lethal injection or, or a lethal drug.
1: You talked about some of the reasons that um, palliative care doctors are opposed or that doctors in general are, are opposed to a change in the law, uh, and that, you know there are others that have put forward. One of the pieces we've just published by Mark Pickering talks about um, how um, vulnerable patients um, might be um, it might particularly affect uh, vulnerable people Uh, coercion is a a problem, Uh, there's the slippery slope argument about the widening of criteria for eligibility but but there are jurisdictions, you know for example Oregon where uh, assisted dying, assisted suicide has been uh, in place legally for Two decades, um, does what is happening in Oregon concern you? Is there data from Oregon to support these worries? Yeah that you have? there is,
5: I mean if you look across I mean one of the things I say is that the truth is that from the evidence worldwide is that physician assisted suicide or euthanasia is not safe in in the hands of doctors um, and if you look at Oregon um, Leaving aside the fact that it's increasing in incidence, the the real question there, and this is about the slippery slope argument, and I don't think it is a slippery slope. I think it's just a, I think it's a, just a change in the nature of a society. Uh, there was somebody um, contacted the Department of Health in Oregon because what was coming out in in the evidence was that people who were given prescriptions were surviving for up to two, three. Uh, years after the prescription was issued and yet the law said um, it was only for people in the last six months of life. Now, of course, the big problem with um, prognosis is that prognosis is unreliable. None of us can prognosticate clearly uh, and working in palliative care, I know that probably better than anybody else. Uh, And the second thing is this, that actually if somebody's suffering, if that's the issue, then why on earth should prognosis be relevant at all? Because the moral argument is if you're better off dead and you believe that, then who is it in society who has the entitlement to say, well, you haven't got a terminal disease? So, for example, if you look at Nicholson um, uh, or if you look at um, anybody else who's come before the courts, many of them have got long-term conditions. They haven't got objectively terminal illness. And so the idea that somehow this is going to be confined to a group of people like this is is daft. It's not. If one person's entitled to have their life ended because it's not worth living, potentially anybody is. And that's a great flaw in trying to link it to illness and terminal illness. I mean, I know why people do it, because if you get doctors involved, then society kind of feels it's okay. Um, But the reality is, if you look at the literature, if you look in... Europe, um, if you look um, to any of the legislatures, and even in Canada, uh, only three years into their legislation, they are already looking at um, uh, minors, so people who are um, children or people under the age of 18 who they think would have capacity. They're already looking at severe or refractory mental illness. They're already looking at categories of people who don't fall under the original Act for the very reason that I've described.
0: Ethical arguments blur into legal ones. Could patients request assisted dying or assisted suicide from the courts rather than from doctors? That's what Zoe Fritz thinks. She's a welcome fellow in society and ethics at the University of Cambridge and a consultant physician in acute medicine at Addenbrookes Hospital. She says her proposal would allow patients who want it to have assisted suicide, but without any potential damage to the doctor-patient relationship.
6: I think there are two different arguments that have been going on for a while. The first is whether a patient should have the right to assisted suicide. And this is particularly important for those patients who might lose the physical capability to end their own lives should they want to. So, for example, there have been patients like um, Noel Conway, who has motor neuron disease, who anticipates that he wouldn't be able to do that, or Tony Nicholson, who was paralyzed and who wasn't able to do that. Um, And they have gone through the courts on a kind of regular basis for the last 20 years about whether this is a human right to be able to end your life. On the other side of things has been a debate about whether doctors should be part of assisting someone's suicide and whether that might Interfere with the relationship a doctor has with a patient. I'm a practicing consultant physician. I work in acute medicine. My job is to try and make patients better. My job is to make sure that I make good decisions with them for what is in their best interests. And normally that means trying to get them better. Sometimes it means stopping treatment and making them comfortable. But it would, I think, interfere with my patient's ability to trust me and my ability to do a good job if in the back of everyone's mind was, maybe this doctor actually wants me to end my life. So I I, I believe that separating those two things out and saying first we need to have a debate about the patient's right for assisted suicide and then say how might we achieve this without impinging on the doctor-patient relationship allows those two debates to be untangled. And the way that I think that can happen is saying let's take the doctor out of this debate and let's put it into the courts. The idea that I'm not the first to propose uh, is that it would be done in, for example, the Court of Protection, which currently has responsibility for looking at patients who lack capacity. And we would say, in a court, judges are trained to be able to assess whether a patient or an individual has has a firm, settled idea that they want to end their life, that they haven't been under undue influence from other people, that... All possible treatment options have been evaluated and assessed. And here a doctor could be involved. They would come as an expert witness. They might explain the patient's uh, disease and their prognosis. Uh, But they would be there as an expert, not as a person who was either influencing the decision to or not to grant this patient assisted suicide.
0: There's no easy answer on this one. The BMJ supports legal assisted dying but many key doctors' organisations oppose it, including the BMA and currently the Royal College of Physicians. But we may see that change this month. You can read articles by some of these commentators and many more on the topic on bmj.com. The BMJ will continue to strive to present all voices in this challenging conversation. As always, we'd be delighted to know what you think, so please send us a rapid response. We publish the best as formal letters to the editor. I'll be back with more in future, so make sure you subscribe to us so you don't miss out. We're on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Richard Hurley. Thanks for listening.